Welcome to ADHD Flourishing, about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real-life stories, and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here, and you belong. I'm your ADHD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Starting off strong with that title, poverty is not your fault. I mean that in a variety of ways, and we'll dig into several of them. But first, a weird little bit of context. This topic was already on my mind, and then I heard someone else on a podcast talking about how much Calvinism shaped early American policy. I'm sorry I don't remember who, because I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm terrible with names. I was technically raised in Calvinist thought, though not one of the actual denominations based in it, and all I remembered was predestination. This person was talking about how, in Calvinist theology, or at least what it became, if God loved and chose you, he would reward you materially. Inversely, many people then believed that if you were poor, it's because God hadn't chosen you. That idea was so foundational to many early politicians who were colonizing and then building American institutions that it pervades our judiciary, it pervades our churches, and our public life. For me, that pulled together multiple threads. Why manifestation culture bothers me so much, why so many people who inherit wealth truly believe they deserve it, and why I despise guilt and shame around debt. But I'm not going to get into all of that today. So onto the topic at hand, poverty is not your fault. Poverty is not your fault. Debt is not your fault. Yes, even if you think you made quote bad choices. My three big topics around this are the systemic issues at play, the neurodivergent issues at play, and how fucked up debt is. You probably already know some of the systemic issues that in some way affect everyone listening. If you have any identity except a straight, white, cisgender man who grew up at least middle class, was born in America and so were his parents, is fully bodily abled and neurotypical, not considered ugly, got a decent education, if you experienced anything besides that, you're at a disadvantage when it comes to working and building wealth in America. And this is an American context. Sure, it's possible to overcome just about any specific obstacle with enough other talents and resources, and people do. But at this point, it's pretty fucking infuriating that I can relay story after story of times when I specifically made less money than someone else because of my identities and my identities alone. Even when that's technically illegal, we know it happens all the time. This inequality also builds up over time. If you're making less money or have worse benefits, you often have less access to support in a variety of ways. Your loved ones, family, and friends are also statistically more likely to not have their needs fully met if you share those identities in common. Whole communities, in many cases by design, if we're talking about racism and ableism, who have little access to significantly changing their circumstances. And if you look at history in America, sometimes being violently attacked if they do. It's also expensive being poor. There are more fees, fewer discounts, fewer benefits and perks. If something goes wrong and you don't have a safety net, it can absolutely screw you over and sometimes screw over a bunch of people around you for a very long time. 
to touch back on how deep Calvinism goes in America, I know that I was raised to believe that poverty was essentially a choice. Ironic, since we were poor, but my parents, as far as I can tell, thought that was their choice since my dad was a pastor and my mom stayed at home. Never mind that once my dad left the church and my mom started working, they did not have much earning power. If you've never noticed the cultural messaging I'm talking about, or if you live in another country, ask yourself this. Is my financial situation my fault? Do I feel guilty or ashamed of my finances? If yes, I bet that some of what you're experiencing is this Calvinist bullshit that has seeped into the pores of our cultural language. The other big point I want to make about the systemic issues is that because we're trained to think of poverty and debt as our fault, we truly don't know the magnitude of how much structural inequity affects us. Until you start learning the history they were very much not teaching us in school, it's hard to grasp the actual numbers when it comes to how much class warfare has been used to keep most people down and how tools like racism and ableism and xenophobia and transphobia have been used to separate the working class so we don't work together and change shit. I lived in Boston for over a decade, and the big newspaper there had a story about how white families in the greater Boston area had an average net worth of just under $250,000, and black families had an average net worth of $8. That was in 2015, and apparently it was a quite small sample size and only asked non-immigrant black families. However, even if the number adjusted upward significantly, it would still be an enormous gap. Hearing those kinds of statistics, I hope you can start to make space for this idea that not only is poverty not your fault, it's baked into the system. That doesn't preclude any action or change on our part, but this is a generational systemic issue that we can't simply bootstrap our way out of. Onto the neurodivergent issues at play, and in particular, my viewpoint as a disabled and ADHD person. I've had many clients at this point who are deeply ashamed of their finances and don't even want to look at them. I was trying to explain this recently to a financial planner educator who approached me to ask questions about ADHD in particular. She couldn't even wrap her mind around what I was saying. Here's what I laid out to her. ADHD folks are very likely to have a strange and varied career, often without building a higher salary in any part of it. Sometimes autistic people will stay at one company for a really long time, which also means they'll be earning less than folks who moved laterally. ADHD folks are more likely to be fired or burn out. They may be discriminated against at work, especially if they're also queer, trans, part of the global majority, or disabled. In the long run, this adds up to earning significantly less over a lifetime. Add in that terrible cultural messaging I was talking about earlier, and many of us end up feeling ashamed. We can often see how many talents we do have and maybe some resources and advantages in some way, but without a clear way to actually apply them and be rewarded for it. Even if we make good money, which of course some ADHD folks do, either sporadically or regularly, we also tend to be impulsive. <laughs> impulsive shopping is definitely something I experience cyclically. At this point, I have a lot of tools that help me with urges, but here's the pattern I notice in myself these days. I will have a period when I just want to have less and get rid of stuff. Very few urges to buy anything. Then there will be a few days or a few weeks when it's like the purchasing button gets flipped in my brain. Sometimes I'll go back and buy things that were on my mind before. 
By the way, this is why I no longer keep a list of things to buy. <laughs> Sometimes I'll just go buy all of them. Sometimes when the buy button is on in my brain, I'll spontaneously walk into stores I wouldn't usually go into and buy something. Or if I see something online that's close enough to something I've been thinking about, I'll just get it. Thankfully, for the most part, this hasn't led to any big issues in my life because I'm mostly buying pretty small stuff and I haven't really scaled up my tastes. I'm still very happy buying used clothes, getting stuff from neighbors on buy nothing groups, and using up what I have. But still, that impulsive part of me exists. Someone in Like Your Brain was interested in talking about impulsive spending, so I'm thinking of putting something together around that. At first, I was thinking live workshop, but when I was thinking about the techniques I'd want to teach, I might actually just record myself and put it out there. It feels like a useful and important topic for a lot of us. How does this fit into the broader topic? Well, while I do have ultimate responsibility for my actions, here's how I think about the impulsive spending. If housing, food, and healthcare were just available to everyone for free or basically free, which I think they should be, it wouldn't be at all a big deal for me to impulsively buy some things based on my conditioning and brain chemicals. And this isn't even getting into how manipulative and ubiquitous professional marketing is, especially with social media being so effective at changing our brains and getting us to take action. So while yes, in some sense, I'm responsible for an individual purchase I make, it's also part of me being a mammal in a world that technologically advanced much more quickly than my brain was ready for, being advertised to by companies who can literally buy off lawmakers so they aren't regulated properly without a social safety net if anything does go wrong. Also, I've had both trauma and mental health issues, and that absolutely plays into how shopping works in my brain. As one example, if I'd had ADHD meds younger, I'd be less prone to addiction now. Even if I were 100% responsible for every little thing I do and not being affected by any outside forces, being unkind to myself never helps me change anything. So wherever you fall philosophically on this issue, here's my last point on the neurodivergent part of this topic. We can't guilt ourselves into anything. We can't guilt ourselves into anything, especially taking action that feels unsafe. If it's helpful for you to blame the system or your neurochemistry, I honestly think that's very valid and has a lot of truth in it. If it's helpful for you to stick with the 100% self-responsibility line, I don't think that's quite as true, but I think it's okay to hold ideas that are useful, even if not completely true. As long as you're not beating yourself with it as a stick, because that doesn't work. Lastly, I want to talk about debt. My thoughts on this were partly shaped by David Graeber's 2011 book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. I haven't read the book in a while, so I'm very much paraphrasing. It's also a big book with some pretty intense stuff in it, but I do recommend it if you're interested in the topic. Most of us were taught that currency developed as a way to simplify barter, but the book lays out how there's historical evidence that actually physical money was developed because debt already existed. Some of what's intense in the book is talking about women as property and payment for debt, as well as enslavement. So the history of debt itself is quite fucked up. I want to use an example that's quite common in my social circles, student loan debt. I have over 100k of student loan debt myself, a big chunk of which is directly the fault of an ex for whom I worked for free and took on more debt to keep doing so. Yes, I alternate between feeling really shitty about that series of decisions I made in my early 20s 
and also recognizing how much happened around that that wasn't my fault and that I literally didn't understand at the time. So student loans, why are they charging us interest? They don't have to. There's no reason to besides greed. There's certainly no reason to have the interest build higher than the original cost of the loan. I have multiple loans that I've been paying on for over a decade, but they're higher now than the original cost of the loan. That's absolutely ridiculous. Credit cards are predatory, and a lot of what they do should be illegal. Personal loans, car loans, plenty of mortgages can also be predatory and give people a lot more debt than their income can really allow. Many stores give out credit cards even if you have bad credit, and it's the norm for those to be around 30% interest, which again, should be criminal. It's total extortion. Medical debt is one of the top reasons for bankruptcy in the U.S., I know multiple people right now who are struggling to pay for basic medical care. And the reason medical costs are so high here is that one of the few regulations that was supposed to help backfired. Insurance companies are only allowed to keep a certain percentage as profit, so it's in their interests to drive up medical costs so they can keep more in profit. It's a total cyclical scam. And all of this combines together, again, because this isn't just one form of debt. Most people with debt have many of the above, and then we're shamed about it because some kinds of debt are considered more of a lower class problem. This isn't even getting into things like short-term advances on your paycheck from shady storefronts in low-income areas. I don't know as much about them, but I know that the interest rates are absolutely nuts, and it's easy to get into a vicious cycle it's impossible to get out of. That's a pretty apt statement for a lot of what we're talking about here. A vicious cycle it's impossible to get out of. Because... Debt is set up in fundamentally two different systems, depending on whether you're already rich. If you're already rich, debt often helps you make more money, and you have a lot of options for getting benefits from your debt. If you're not rich, debt is designed to keep you in debt. You're not supposed to be able to get out of it. It's just one more way to siphon our resources to the very rich. The reason I'm specifically pointing out our excess labor and resources profiting the rich as people rather than saying the banks, is that there's this really insidious idea I grew up around that I want to highlight. It's this American idea that anyone can become rich. But rather than that just sitting there innocuously, that idea is used as a reason for the rich to influence politics and not pay taxes. Because hey you, regular poor person in debt, would you want to pay a bunch of taxes when you might become rich? I saw the movie Dumb Money recently about the GameStop stock thing in 2021. The movie was a lot better than I expected, honestly. Side note, I bet it's because the screenwriting team was two women, so instead of being really bro-y, which is what I expected from the trailer, it was actually really snappy and funny and ultimately kind of heartwarming. One of the real-life people the movie was portraying is something like the 38th richest person in the world, and he's on record as saying that rich people don't have enough political influence in America. If some of this is feeling a little squicky to you because you've really bought into the idea that anyone can become rich, that we're responsible for our level of wealth, and that our level of wealth reflects something about our character or mindset, that's okay. That's the water we're swimming in. I've had a really complicated journey with money in the past few years. After making six figures for the first and so far only time a couple years ago, and then having this big dark night of the soul around what the hell am I doing, and not wanting to, quote, scale my business on the backs of my own community. I talk more about that journey in episode 10, Money and Surviving Capitalism, if you want to hear more about that. 
As I was writing notes for this episode, Simone Soule put out an episode debunking the idea of scarcity mindset. I'll link to the episode because it's tangential, but also a great point that relates to especially the Calvinist stuff. She talks about a study in which people experiencing poverty had lower cognitive skills, and it was the same people at different times of the year, people with cyclical income. They had less cognitive ability during the poorer times of the year. I also loved the definition of poverty in that study, which was not having your needs met. That's so broad, and I love that because it's not just about actual money or resources, it's also about your needs and whether you're stressed in order to meet them. By that definition, I'm actually doing pretty well day to day, as long as I don't think about my student loans and the asshole who's responsible for about 50k of them. My basic needs are met, and I'm feeling pretty good day to day with what feels like pretty normal ups and downs based on circumstances. But it would be very easy for me to focus on the negative here and feel guilty about my debt, which I'm pretty sure is what a lot of the people making money on the debt hope I will do, be a miserable wreck until the debt is paid off. But I'm refusing to live that way because fuck them. I do want to apologize that this episode is so US-centric because I know I have listeners all over the world, but still, America has exported a lot of the same bullshit all over the place. And you may have had your own experiences with feeling guilty if you're not meeting some external standard of financial well-being. Okay, I don't want to leave it there with just everything is terrible. What does this mean for us in the real world? What can we actually do with this knowledge that poverty, meaning not having our needs met, is not our fault? First of all, anything that lessens guilt and shame is helpful in the long run. When we're in a constricted and fearful state, it's harder to be creative or even do basic things. And again, this does not push us to the other end of the argument by implying that we can just hard work or creativity our way out of this if we're in the right frame of mind. Still, I've found that any move toward feeling better ends up being really helpful, even though it won't solve all the big systemic stuff. Second, one of the most important things you can do around finances is to have a sense of your own situation and seek help if needed. I know that's terrifying and I hate it too, but if you've ever been in this mental loop I've found myself in, not wanting anyone to look at the situation because you're sure it's going to turn around soon, Well, maybe it will and maybe it won't, but it's not your fault that you need help if you do. Third, building a felt sense of safety. What I'm about to say is going to sound a bit contradictory, so hang with me in the paradox for a bit. I'd like to tease out this idea that the safer we feel, the easier it is not only to make better choices, but literally to see opportunities and be able to act on them. And at the same time, I think... We shouldn't have to feel shame if the circumstances themselves are affecting our biology such that that's difficult to refer back to that study. Anything you can do to feel more safe, to feel deeply nourished in this cyclical way, helps your animal body calm down. Stress is not a bad thing. Cortisol is what wakes us up in the morning. But this cyclical stress or stress cycle, as you may have heard it talked about, it's part of our body's need for homeostasis. We need to be able to go up to get into action and come back down as part of restorative time. It's toxic that most of the onus for that has been put on individuals. 
We're basically told that if we eat right, sleep right, exercise right, get the right number of hugs a day, and guard our microbiome, we too can have an awesome life. Being perfect about habits is just not in the capacity of most ADHD people, at least not for extended periods of time without that habit changing. Hopefully it's clear that I'm not suggesting that you have to perfect any of these things to move towards more safety. Any motion towards safety and stress reduction tends to be useful, even if there's still a lot of feelings of unsafety or stressful days, any amount of restorative time is useful. That means what's restorative to your body and brain specifically. Any periods of time in which the nervous system is able to stretch both up and down in a safe enough way is part of having a healthy nervous system. I wanted to highlight how helpful this can be, not because I want you to do it all yourself, but because for me, it has been a really important part of building a life that works for me. The safety came first, not the making money on what I love, but it is cyclical because when I got into affordable city housing, even though I wasn't making a lot, I had that security and I could feel my baseline anxiety coming down. So it's this really cyclical thing where I had some supports that helped with safety. And then once I felt safer, it was easier to take the broad view and take action that actually made sense for me. Everyone's journey in that regard is going to look different, but if you're not sure where to start, I recommend moving towards more nervous system regulation and anything that helps you feel more safe. Lastly, I do think we need some pretty drastic action collectively that may or may not happen soon. I'm very pro general strikes and debt strikes, but in the meantime, if it's possible to just give less of a fuck around what debt means about you as a person, I think that's really helpful. I know that can sound contradictory with a look at your situation and seek help, but I've done all of the above at once. And if something like bankruptcy would actually be really meaningful to your situation, there are ways to get student loans discharged during bankruptcy, and that can be worth looking into. This is obviously not financial advice, but if you're running numbers and asking for help and it just feels totally undoable, sometimes that hard reset can be really helpful. If you go that route or if you have before, no shame. People get driven to this point by a cruel system that literally doesn't care if we die. <sighs> I would like to end on a slightly lighter note, but I'm not sure what to say. The other side of this topic for me is enoughness, which I think about a lot, especially from an emotional standpoint. But I don't think we can or should try to just shunt our brains into an experience of enoughness when our literal physical needs are not being met. I guess the more hopeful note is that I think one way this can all get better is if we're talking about it. We don't have to tell people actual numbers we're not comfortable with, but we can talk about how stressful money and debt are, how much it sucks that we have to mask so hard just to survive, and how fucking impossible it feels to get anywhere financially when you're disabled. When we talk about these things, it makes it easier to figure out not just individual solutions, but potential collective solutions. In my view, that's the only way we're really going to get out of this. You don't have to bootstrap or positive think your way out of debt or poverty. Debt and poverty are not your fault. It's not your fault that your needs aren't being met. You deserve to be cared for and have your needs met. 
and you've deserved that your whole life. If you'd like a space to talk about this, part of the reason Like Your Brain exists is because I know there are so many neurodivergent and disabled folks who are trying to get somewhere with their life, but don't have the time or money to do a huge program with a big goal in a short time frame. Come hang out and work on your shit and talk about how fucked up all of this is. <laughs> Let's build a better world, starting with our own little corner. I actually thought of one last story I want to share that happened right before I was about to record. This weekend is my birthday. Right now, I'm in one of my get rid of things phases. So until a couple days ago, I was thinking there really wasn't anything I even wanted to ask for. Then I remembered there was this one specific art supply I'd tried and loved, but hadn't bought it because it was expensive. When I went to look for it to send the link to my partner, I was going to select the 15 color set because that felt reasonable to me as a gift amount around $30, or maybe even the 30 color set, which was around $60. Then I saw that they had a specialty set with 42 colors each of two different products I really wanted, which was almost $200. I was like, this is totally ridiculous, but I sent the various links to my partner and was like, this one's totally ridiculous, but I would use it. And they were just like, hell yeah, I'll get that for you. I then proceeded to have a huge processing afternoon with childhood parts of me who never got what they wanted, never even felt like they could ask for what they wanted, and never had their art making recognized, even though I was making art all the time and taught myself how to draw really well as a kid. Literally, I was crying about how this is one of the nicest gifts anyone has ever gotten me and that it's just because I want it and not because it meets some actual need of mine. Even when I've asked for art supplies before, it's usually been more practical, like items I'm using professionally. This story felt a little weird to include, but I wanted to share it because in my experience, both a lot of people who grew up in poverty and a lot of autistic people end up in this, I don't need stuff place. It's easier to just not ask when we're used to not having our needs met. And that wraps back around to the definition of poverty as not having our needs met. How many ADHD kids have their needs met? Another thing this story highlights that I've been very much processing for years is that learning how to receive and actually having it feel good can be a long, tough process. It's easy to think about having more and think it will feel great, but in my experience, there are two aspects to it. First, there's the side of literal safety and security, that capacity for feeling more safety which is absolutely a good thing, even if it's emotionally confusing. Second, there's this guilt around having anything beyond my absolute basic needs met, and all of these layers of processing around the ideas of worthiness, deserving, and grieving very much not having my needs met for almost all of my life. When my partner does something really kind and tender, There's often a part of me that feels like I don't deserve it in some way and should probably reject it. I'm getting better at not rejecting it, but it's still in process. If that resonates for you because you're reaching a place of more comfort of any kind, I see you. It's really hard to let myself experience comfort and joy when there's so much shit going on in the world. It feels like I can never give enough. And at the same time, I absolutely do not buy into the idea that I should make as much money as possible so I can give more. I want to change the systems causing the problems while supporting my communities in the meantime so they can live to see the change. 
On that note, this episode got pretty long and I could easily spin off and talk about any of the points for an hour. I invite you to shake off any tension that might have accumulated in your body thinking about these topics. And if it's at all helpful for you to process about this, you can write or record your ideas. You can talk to someone else. You can come start a thread over in Like Your Brain. No matter what, you deserve to have your needs met. Even if you feel like you were or are responsible for, quote, bad financial decisions. Even if you're having trouble imagining a way out of your current situation. Even if you're receiving a ton of support and help and it still doesn't feel like enough. Your feelings are valid and you're not the only person affecting your current situation. We are in ecosystems together. I hope this episode started to peel back some layers of shame for you. And maybe some of it is planting seeds that will grow over time and come back to you later. Poverty is not your fault. Debt is not your fault. And you don't have to find solutions alone. Thanks for being here and taking a moment for yourself. I hope the episode sparked some ideas or possibilities for your own journey. If you're looking for gentle ongoing support, I invite you to join the Like Your Brain community. It's a non-hierarchical and no-pressure space to share our lived experiences together and learn from each other. Ask authentic questions, share your own wisdom, and be a part of building a safer space for folks with identities that are often marginalized. And if you're not yet ready to be seen in a group space, we've all been there, you can join the podcast support tier, which has a private podcast feed with some of the learnings from Like Your Brain and additional podcast content, so you can absorb on your own terms and timeline. We're here whenever you're ready. The link is in the show notes or at patreon.com slash Mattia. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash M-A-T-T-I-A. Have a great week.